This is episode 483 of the AWS podcast, released on November 14, 2021. Podcast confirmed. Welcome to the official AWS podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. It's Simon Lee with you. Great to have you back. And I'm joined by a very special guest to talk about a topic near and dear to my heart, which is storage. I'm joined by Ryan Sarah. How are you going, Ryan? Hey, I'm doing all right. That is good. Now, you are a worldwide senior specialist in storage for EBS. So uh, anything that looks, smells, and tastes like EBS, we can talk about today. Absolutely. Even the embarrassing questions about storage, I'm happy to answer. <laughs> well, storage is a near and dear topic to my heart. I spent many years working at, back in the day, working at Veritas Software and Hitachi Data Systems. So uh, I, I remember the old school of storage, and we may we may touch on that as we have our conversation. But um, we're going to talk about uh, some interesting I2 Block Express stuff when it comes to EBS. But before we start with that, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, well, I'm a uh, world citizen. I'm uh, I'm American-born British. I married a Brazilian-born German. Uh, I used to cover Europe, Middle East, and Africa for 11 years for a number of storage companies, and then uh, decided to come back to the old art in the United States. And now I'm here working at AWS. There you go. Very well traveled in these uh, non-traveling days. But let's talk about um, let's do the basics. Let's talk about EBS, the Elastic Block Store. What is it? And and more importantly, you know, we have listeners who have listened for a long time and listeners, listeners who are new. Um, for those folks who have listened for a long time, I think it's also refreshing to learn what EBS looks like today versus back in the day. So let's talk about EBS and, and how it fits into how a customer would build on AWS. Yeah. So uh, Amazon EBS, Elastic Block Store, it's, it's a really easy to use, high-performance block storage service. It's designed to use directly with Amazon EC2, Elastic Compute Cloud Instances. And there's a variety of options to actually optimize for both throughput as well as transaction intensive or just uh, scalable data for workloads at any scale. So if I have to store stuff, <laughs> it's got to go somewhere. Um, but there, there are many different storage options. You know, if, I, if I think off the top of my head, we've got uh, S3, we've got Glacier, we've got EFS, we've got um, FSX. Um, cache-based stuff, where does EBS fit in the ecosystem of storage? Totally. I, you know, I, I think of EBS or, or block storage in particular as being particularly fundamental. Like when you have, um, and it kind of relates to block storage in your normal home device. So anything that is run to use that boots up or runs an operating system with applications like your laptop, your Amazon Echo, your Ring doorbell, that's a block storage device. And so those applications that need like a low latency profile or just something that is akin to say like a born in the data center workload, that's gonna be more tied to block storage than say S3, which is object storage. And object storage is really the future of, of how we use storage with data lakes and really impressive access anywhere, uh, wonderful APIs and those types of things. So it's, it covers the gamut of uh, needs for the future stuff. Uh, but with EBS, we're we're actually covering uh, really the fundamentals: being able to boot things, being able to access things with low latency profiles. Yeah, it's pretty pretty common common model when you're choosing to deploy anything performance or um, particularly mission critical to some degree. But let's maybe take it back to to, to some compare with type stuff. So if if I'm uh, currently running a data center and I'm very much au fait with SANs and 
LUNs and host bus adapters and, and that sort of stuff. How do I think about EBS and, and how does EBS, I guess, build upon that sort of mental model of what you can do with storage? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, when we lived in a world where we had to know every single bits and bob in terms of, of like all of the cabling, all of the pathing, all of the provisioning, RAID, RAID levels, all of those things, all the way getting to the point that you actually had, say, a LUN or, or a volume that was presented to the operating system, ah, that's, that's a lot of effort. Um, EBS really simplifies all of that. In fact, you have uh, really some simple choices. You have the volumes in particular, which might have some uh, bells and whistles being able to choose for uh, optimizing for uh, performance with IOPS or throughput. Or you could uh, be able to uh, optimize actually your compute instance to have a greater amount of bandwidth. So there are special EBS uh, accelerated Nitro instances that have the ability to, to uh, run up to 60 gigabit of, of bandwidth. Well, that's great if you have an application that needs that. Maybe you don't necessarily need that that much, and then you'll use a different instance type. So you, <laughs> AWS is really built for builders, and so you can be able to choose a lot of different nuances, but really having to worry about the interconnect between the actual storage service and the instance, uh, that's something that AWS were able to take care of for you. And I think one of the other interesting things in uh, you know, in the quote unquote old days, <laughs> i.e., ten years ago, um, you know, there's a lot of time spent with round spinning Rust, and uh, there was also time spent with the new fancy SSDs. But if I recall one thing from from the past, it was uh, the need to stand in a very cold data center and install racks of drives into storage arrays, and that takes time. You know, you got to order it. You've got to fulfill it, you've got to get it delivered, you've got to get into the loading dock, you've got to take it into the data center, you've got to plug it in, you've got to format it. It takes a while, whereas in the EBS world, it's a hello API call, give me a few seconds and I'll have that right for you. That, that's revolutionary when it comes to storage management. Oh, absolutely. In fact, some users will still ask me, okay, what is the RAID level that I need to stripe across the different volume types? Uh, and, and then I go, hold on, hold on, hold on a second. You know, what is the application that you're actually serving for? And what is the level of, you know, like availability and durability you need to build for? And then and then they kind of go, oh, okay, well, it's this is the equivalent. So this is, we can build into this. And it makes it a, a much easier kind of application-focused conversation rather than people just trying to directly abstract as if they had a virtualized rack that they had to keep plugging in or imagine that they were plugging in different paths to their between their compute and their storage. And I guess it also means you can more forgivingly make mistakes with your provisioning. So if you get the wrong level of IOPS or the wrong, um, the wrong size, um, it's not a big drama, is it, to sort of uh, change it on the fly? It's totally easy. In fact, it is no longer punitive to storage administrators when it comes to uh, you know, there's these refresh cycles with these, you know, large scale on-prem sends and you have to kind of go, well, I think my growth patterns are this way. So I need to anticipate this amount of storage that I'll be using in three years time. And I hope for the best because then it's going to be a really painful, you know, mid upgrade change if I, if I get it wrong. Rather, you know, you just use what you use. And in, uh, the, the beauty of uh, EBS, especially with elastic volumes, which we'll get into later, is the fact that you can start small and then grow it as you use it, rather than, you know, provision for what you would anticipate to be, you know, 100% utilization so much down the line. 
Yes, it's a, it's a much nicer two-way door type decision when it comes to storage versus I've invested in this and I'm stuck with it for five years now. And, and what about um, what about backup? You know, I was I was always brought up in the in the the mental model that nothing is stored until it's backed up in at least two other places. So, uh, what does backup look like in an EBS world? Yeah, so there's kind of two levels to backup. There's like the uh, it, there's the easy workflow roll, roll forward, roll back functionality of snapshots. And we have a mechanism called Amazon Data Lifecycle Management, which does snapshot management within EBS, which allows you to be able to do snapshots and, and do incremental snapshots to volumes. Very, very simply straightforward. We have APIs to also uh, uh, coordinate if you want an external management of those snapshots, as well as kind of complementary to that, if we think of like um, business continuity, disaster recovery, those type of classic uh, backup applications, well, there's AWS backup too. And that actually backs up to S3 and Glacier, Glacier Deep Archive. So you get your 11 nines of, of data durability and you can move those to different geographies for extra protection as well. It's, it's, a, it's a great service. And so one of the things that we love about working with customers at, at AWS is that they always want new and interesting things to solve new use cases. And you know, over 90% of our roadmap is driven by customer feedback and EBS is no different. And so there's a new volume type called IO2 Block Express. Help us unpack why it was created and, and some of the things it brings to the table because from, from my desk, there's some pretty impressive numbers to be had here. Yeah, so IO2 Block Express came about with the natural evolution of, of being able to architect kind of modern systems. And I think one of my favorite aspects to IO2 Block Express is that it's highly durable. In fact, it's five nines of durability and five nines of availability. And you know, previously we that's I mean that's a hundred times more than our previous volume type. And so users before they would say, okay, I have a really, you know, I have a really sensitive or a complex or complicated uh, workload that is really sensitive to to these types of, of um, uh, downtime events. So they were they were going through the effort, the motions of of building their own RAID configurations and mirroring and striping and all all sorts to ensure that durability in the past. But now, I mean, now that we have this highly durable volume type, you could just provision it straight away and use the application as if it was just straightforward and you can trust that durability and availability on the back end. Uh, in addition to that, there was, an uh, because we were getting more bandwidth on the back end, we recognized that we could actually leverage a new protocol. You, you know, when you're talking uh, to a SAN person, they would expect their fiber channel networks to be multipath. You know, they're using fiber channel, they're yep. using MPIO, yep. and they've got all sorts of balancing and whatnot. Um, a new protocol actually came about called Scalable Reliable Datagrams. It's also known as SRD. Um, it's only available on EC2 Nitro instances that leverage the Elastic Fabric Adapter. So it's any any Nitro instance as EFA, and it it is effectively taking that MPIO and borrowing from. Uh, it actually was it was invented by the HPC team here at AWS to uh, and it's inspired by lots of great technologies like InfiniBand and you know MPIO carrier grade Ethernet those types of things and it allows a very tight sub millisecond I/O path and and low latency and low jitter so that low latency that's perfectly fine for an environment. Uh, that you control. So SAN environment, you know exactly who the tenants are, et cetera, et cetera. 
But in a multi-tenant environment where you might not necessarily know your neighbors, this becomes critically important. So when you have a highly available, highly durable environment, you're leveraging a, a new protocol, and you can also have a significant improvement in, in terms of performance dimensions. I'll give, I, I, I use like basically like four times across a bunch of different dimensions, four times the size. It goes up to 64 terabytes volumes. It go, it's four times the IOPS, so it's 256,000 IOPS. It's, it's four times more than IO1. And it also goes four gigabytes a second of throughput. So it's Amazing. a lot of different... Yeah, yeah. So finally, you have these... And, and you can imagine the users with these born-in-the-data-center types of applications that are, yeah, you know, I just buy, you know, bigger, better, harder uh, hardware, and I just run it still in my data center because I just, I need that 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 high level of performance. We can finally deliver mm, that mm. at AWS. So finally, those those storage admins that would be in a meeting room or on a, uh, on a video conference call, they'd have their arms folded and go, well, you know, my application is really important. Well, we get that. And that's why we built the IO2 Block Express type, because we wanted to deliver that type of quality and service availability that that customers were expecting in their uh in their on-premise sand architecture and i think with those numbers i mean they're, they're impressive just to go back again i mean we're talking 64 terabytes in one volume which is just mind-blowing and 256,000 iops for that volume that's that's like a sand array in itself and in the past certainly we would see customers rating together multiple volumes and doing all kinds of um great interesting tricks to, to, to extract that level of performance. Again, this is undifferentiated heavy lifting. You just click the uh, API and get the volume type. So all that complexity has gone away, plus the, the level of latency that we can provide now is, is far improved compared to other volume types. Yeah, actually, one thing to point out on it with that is some users, they're used to just having Stripe volumes and they, they might have an on-premises system and they just want to recreate the Stripes uh, virtually. And I actually say, hey, hold on a second, because interestingly enough, IO2 Block Express has this use more, save more with IOPS. They get cheaper at 32,000 IOPS and cheaper still after 64,000 IOPS. So there's actually a good reason to stop striping and just use normal volumes. And as your demands go more, you're able to save more. So I really like That's that. That's interesting. And yeah. You just go, yeah, go, go a big volume rather than striping lots of volume. Yeah, sometimes I have to contend with a really grumpy database administrator that read some best practices guides that were a little bit biased towards on-premises architectures. And I have to say, well, it's just a little bit different because it's abstracted virtually here in AWS. But these are all the benefits, especially when you're right-sizing, because you could start with a volume that might be, I don't know, uh, 5 terabytes, 10 terabytes, and keep growing without having to need uh, to stripe. When you're actually using a RAID stripe, you kind of lose that that ability to kind of uh, grow as your footprint grows. So I, well, I, I think, love to point that out yeah. and say, hey, start out small. It, you, you can still grow into it. Well, the other thing that it gets rid of from a latency perspective is the short stroking we used to have to do on hard drives and that sort of stuff as well. <laughs> you know, all those all those <laughs> yeah. kind of tricks of the trade go away and that's that's okay. Um, but, but maybe let's, you know, given, given the excitement around the fact that we have this new volume type, how do the other volume types fit in? Like give us a bit of a ready reckoner when, when I use what? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So, like, if people, so for example, GP2 and GP3 are kind of the general purpose SSD volume types. Um, you know, it's the default EC2 instance that if you don't know what to choose, you you, you get uh, you get GP2 today, and and uh, you know, in the future, it'll be GP3. So, if you don't specify it, that's pretty good. It's single digit millisecond latency. And if you're using GP3, you can extend it by, you know, up to 16,000 IOPS and you can go up to a gigabyte a second, but you know, you don't get the level of durability with IO2. You don't, um, you don't get block express for that exceptional amount of, of parallel IO. So there's, there's pros and cons. Also, if you had like a life cycle where you had a volume that was, you know, maybe uh, maybe this month or this quarter, you you create a new volume for a particular workload. You're filling it up, and then you have to keep it online, um, but for reference. So it doesn't make sense to necessarily keep it in an IO2 volume type if you're not going to access it. So you can use Elastic Volumes, which is a wonderful online tool that that makes sure that the volume is online. You can transition to a different volume type. Maybe you transition it to GP3, and maybe you're still accessing it. Or maybe for compliance reasons, you want to keep a volume online, but you're not necessarily going to use all of the IO. You just need to keep it online for compliance reasons. So uh, it's it's a batch process that just needs uh, data availability. Then you could transition to ST1 or SC1. And SC1 is super cool because I like the fact that we lowered the price by 40% uh, in the last, uh, uh, in December 20, uh, 2020, mm, reInvent. Mm. Customers have been really happy about that, especially with the customers that really have to keep that data online at all times. And so we're talking about sort of a, a new, a new, type or, or family of, of storage, the IO2 Block Express. And I just want to come back to the fact that, again, I'm going to, I'm going to channel old school Simon. You know, we're saying let's go one honk and great volume. Um, naturally, my thought process is going to be, well, durability and availability. You mentioned some fancy numbers there. Let's unpack that a little more just to make sure that we, we're confident that the storage we're using is, is the right fit. Yeah, it's it's a great point. Um, all volumes have five nines of availability, but not all volumes have five nines of durability. In fact, uh, many of the volume types have three nines, which I think for you know workloads that are ephemeral in nature or somewhat ephemeral in nature, or that users are already leveraging a lot of um, snapshots or AWS backup, that's that's not so much of an issue. They can restore as they need, but. So let's let's make the difference between availability and durability. Mm. Availability is the fact that a resource can be found in the cloud at any given moment. You know, it's it's going to the command line and pinging a server and getting a reply. You know, great, it's online, it's responding. That's that's five nines for a long time. But the durability aspect, and I think that that's really meaningful for a lot of these users that have those, you know, uh, single or HA instance scale up databases, for example they have to keep those online. It's not like those databases have really sophisticated ways of being able to to make a round robin mechanism. So durability is more meaningful because of that precious data. You want to ensure that the data is complete and persisting across those unforeseen external events. You know, most of the users that I talk to, if they're, you know, a database use case where, you know, one database is super important, they want that higher level of durability. And I, this becomes more of a topic with architectures that come from that born in the data center world where you had one server or you had two HA servers that had that bulletproof SAN array that could endure you know, a power supply failing or this or that failing. 
uh, it was the arrays that ensured that availability. It wasn't the application on the that could be able to say, oh, this volume's offline. I'll just go to the next one. So that's that's kind of the big differentiator. Mm -hmm. And it's yeah, it's important to users that. I, you know, I, I, it, it always makes me feel a little, a uh, little crazy when I talk about technical debt, but technical debt is a reality for so many infrastructure folks. Yeah. So if you have this Oracle database with 25 year old Perl code that no one wants to refactor, then you got to underpin that with some infrastructure that's going to uh, make it as comfortable and as resilient as possible. So it sounds like it sounds like really the, the, the sort of that, those use cases are, are very much around those more uh, estate type, uh, legacy estate type uh, applications that that need kind of the golden screwdriver engineering to work. Um, yeah. And you can't I, really I change mean, it would, that much, but you do. You definitely want to replatform. I mean, the, one of the popular use cases is really like the structured relational databases, which, you know, you, the Oracles, the Microsoft SQL Server, the uh, DB2s, and uh, even some of the open source ones like MySQL, Postgres, that, that's that's obviously going to be really valuable. There may be use cases that the level of performance is also quite important, like time series databases, which uh, some of these databases like KDB Plus or, or whatnot, we've seen, we've seen good results with that, but it's not limited to database engines. In fact, I've seen really great performance with things like complex code builds where you know maybe you're not parallelizing your code builds you have to have one single system managing all the different objects and all the different uh trees that you have to walk up and down that works really well technical computing applications uh, other low latency parallel workloads clearly benefit so things like scale out file systems where you would have a flavor of of diy hpc and you'd be spinning that up using io2 block express as well nice nice now another thing that came up during last year's reinvent was um was sand in the cloud. Is this the same thing that, that Andy was talking about in 2020? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, sand in the cloud, you know, this term originated by Andy, it was, it's a way to encapsulate that combination of enterprise-ready features and combined vision of EBS volumes being able to support that type of, uh, type of expectation that we have. And, you know, really finally create an array of services that allow us to be able to migrate those demanding enterprise class applications into AWS. You know, these these customers, they would have these really kind of sometimes painful, like complex, painful applications that said, oh, you know, I have to have this latency profile, I have to have this replication profile, et cetera, et cetera. Now we can deliver that, which is which is important. And users can finally have that level of data gravity that they had with their new applications, but finally bring kind of some of their old applications to join them and get even more innovation that way. And one of the things I love about when we release a new, a new service or capability within a service for customers is the stuff they they do with it that we didn't expect them to do or the results they get. So I'm sure you've got a few anecdotes. Tell us tell us some stories of once uh, this was released, uh, what customers found. Oh my goodness! Uh, so some of the users they were testing um, like normal IO2 volumes versus IO2 Block Express volumes, and so one user was using their Oracle Golden Gate database replication and transformation process. And uh, it, basically there's R5 and then there's R5B, which the B stands for block, you know, block enhanced. And they were actually reporting like a five to six times improvement with uh, <laughs> with their workload, which is transformation. That's, you know, amazing. That actually speeds, That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 I mean we were, uh, that's 
I, I don't have enough thumbs to point upwards. That's the kind of thing that you want to have in terms of application acceleration. They were really pleased with the EBS bandwidth and, and the ease of being able to deploy the architecture. So whether that leads, I, I'm sure that that will lead to more interesting blog posts and observations and even tests with kind of like some of those really exotic technical use cases. I'm really excited about that. You know, I've, I've seen previews of benchmarks, which make me really proud to, to show off something that leverages not only like a, a, you know, a faster volume, but also a faster interconnect. And this is getting into like really, you know, this is, this is fundamental bricklaying rather than being able to talk about, you know, a managed service. But there are so many builders out there using AWS just for the pure benefits of infrastructure. And that's where this stuff really shines through. So I'm super excited about that. Yeah, you can get a, a super, super good performance boost without doing much of anything else, which is great. Hey, Ryan, thanks so much for coming on board and uh, telling us all about it. Hey, thanks for having me, and I wish you well. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We do love to get your feedback at AWS Podcast at Amazon.com is the place to do that. And until next time, keep on building.